Welcome in. I'm Doug Powell. And I'm David Filson. And we are the Doctrine, Doctrine Dudes. Dudes. And uh, we are starting up a new podcast here that uh, was inspired by uh, David's classes that he teaches at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. And I kind of uh, sit in for him from time to time. I'm more the Ed McMahon, uh, as uh, if, if you are old enough for that. And uh, we are going to be talking about uh, essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And instead of doing it in a systematic way, uh, from the most important to the least important, we're going to actually be um, uh, paralleling the things that we're doing in the class. And so our uh, first series, which might seem like an odd one to start off with, is on angels and demons, what they are and what the Bible says about them. Yeah, so uh, at Christ Presbyterian Church, where we both uh, are elders and teach, uh, and Doug's more than like an Ed McMahon. It's more like, you know, when Tom Brady was thrown into the game years ago, and then everybody wanted Tom Brady to be the quarterback. That's what happens when he teaches for me. Like, if I'm out traveling, he teaches. I come back the next Sunday. People are like, David, why don't you just stay gone a little bit longer so Doug can keep teaching? Anyway, we are in uh, the Beautiful Word Sunday School class, and maybe we can say a little bit about the name Beautiful Words here in just a second, but the Beautiful Words Sunday School class, we're going through a new series on angels and demons, which is falling between our lengthier series that we just finished on uh, Genesis and uh, coming up, the book of, of Exodus. And so it fits because you see uh, angelic and demonic activity in both Genesis and Exodus. It's fairly prominent, actually. And so we thought we would do sort of a parenthetical study, a kind of an excursus on angels and demons. Part of the reason for that, too, is uh, in my work at Christ Presbyterian Academy. I had the privilege of doing these Q&A sessions with middle schoolers and upper schoolers, and invariably, there's always a predictable set of questions that come my way when I do these Q&A sessions, you know, assurance of salvation, how can I know I'm saved, tell me about the doctrine of predestination, demons and dinosaurs. <laughs> I say it's demons and dinosaurs, angels and assurance. Those things are always being asked by kids, and the reality is, Ask the folks in the Sunday school class, how long has it been since you have done uh, an in-depth study and sort of gone down the, the angelic rabbit hole? We have all these misconceptions about angels in our culture that are uh, sort of foisted upon us by uh, sort of, um, you know, new age kind of conceptions of angels and spiritualism and uh, or, or maybe just kind of doe-eyed precious moments figurines. Uh, we have those conceptions of, of angels that are not biblical. So what we want to do is... Uh, a really thoroughgoing, uh, what we call a biblico-systematic study, where we're looking at the text of Scripture from a biblical, theological, redemptive, historical standpoint. How do we see Christ in all of Scripture and God's plan for redemption from Genesis straight through to the maps, looking exegetically at the meanings of, of words and phrases, but then also looking at it uh, from the standpoint of systematic theology. How, how does angelology, both uh, elect and non-elect angels, fit within uh, the broader scope of, uh, of Christian theology. Uh, I don't even know how to respond to that. That sounds so good. I want to be in that class. Uh, that's why I go to <laughs> You're going to teach class. that class with me. <laughs> you better be in the uh, class. So uh, the, 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 uh, just a little bit about us in order to get going. So you don't think that we're just like guys who bought a camera, uh, although that's pretty much what this podcast yeah. is, is guys who bought a yeah. camera. Uh, but uh, I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics that I got from Biola University, and I uh, write and speak on apologetics topics. 
and uh, doing some postgraduate work right now on the Shroud of Turin, which is another thing that I uh, speak on. And I also write uh, a series of novels on biblical archaeology and um, and then whatever else I get asked to do, usually by David. And uh, David, what's your background? Well, I have um, a Bachelor of Arts in Christian Education from Oakland City University, a Master's of Divinity from Covenant Theological Seminary, and a Ph.D. in Historical and Theological Studies with a special focus on the history of apologetics, particularly post-Princetonian developments in epistemology, focusing on a couple of figures, uh, J. Oliver Boswell and Cornelius Van Til, um, pastor in the PCA uh, since 98, 99, uh, associate pastor at uh, Christ Presbyterian Church and pastor for theology and discipleship at Christ Presbyterian Academy here in Nashville, and I'm also an adjunct professor of apologetics and the uh, senior director of ministry and vocation at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and I also collect Lord of the Rings action figures. <laughs> and uh, and most importantly uh, for me is that there's there are not many friends that I have who know all of my junk and still like remain my friends. And uh, David is is that guy <laughs> for me. So I uh, I so appreciate him both as a friend and as a pastor and as a teacher. Uh, and I'm um, I'm I'm blessed to uh, be able to to sit next to him and, and work through some of these things with you. And truly, one of the finest men and best friends I've ever known in my life. Complete confidence in this brother. Mm-hmm. Complete confidence. Yeah, very kind. So, um, all right. So let's. Uh, why don't we start off with defining some terms then? Sure. Uh, because. We have, like you said, there's so many misconceptions that we have, both from uh, pop culture and just all sorts of influences that we mm-hmm. have uh, on on what angels and demons are like, uh, what they can and can't do, what they look like. Uh, we have a, a whole lot of ideas about angels and demons that uh, come from sources that are both biblical and not biblical. And so it'd be important to start off with just defining them according to the Bible, according to Scripture, what are angels and demons? Yeah. Well, we want to take our cue from Scripture on everything. And one of the reasons this is important is highlighted in C.S. Lewis's uh, famous work, Screwtape Letters, as it refers to non-elect angels or the devils, as he calls them, or demons. And one of the things that uh, Screwtape says to his nephew, Wormwood, is if we can convince people or keep people convinced that we are comic creatures in red tights with pitchforks and pointy tails, they'll realize they're far too sophisticated to believe in something like that, and then they won't believe in us and they won't see us coming. In other words, they'll be capable of sort of being ninja-like uh, or not being noticed, staying uh, incognito. And uh, that sort of comic picture of, of demons is, frankly, as as unhelpful to us as Christians, as is the more sort of um, the image of maudlin sentimentality when it comes to angels, as I said a second ago, kind of a, a chubby little cherub at Valentine's Day, uh, Cupid shooting his arrow or a doe-eyed precious moments figuring. The reality is every time in Scripture that an angel appears, the first words out of his mouth have to be fear not. And so there's something fearsome about Angels, elect angels, good angels, holy angels. In fact, that's part of what makes them so fearsome. You know, Zechariah uh, finds that out when when he is confronted uh, by Gabriel in Luke chapter 1 and is told that your wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and 
bear a son. And of course, he, sort of like Abraham back in Genesis 12 to 17, says this is impossible. I'm an older man. She's an older woman. This is not possible. And so Zechariah demands uh, a sign be given him. And uh, it's really kind of a fearsome moment when Gabriel says simply to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord. And as I said to Sunday school last Sunday, it was at that moment Zechariah knew he had screwed up because there is something fearsome and in the true sense of the word, awesome and terrible about about angels. And so it's important that we have a proper biblical understanding of them, both in terms of their character, their attributes, and exactly what they are. They are, as we're going to get into here in a bit, uh, created beings. Uh, They are not omnipotent, not omnipresent, not omniscient, and yet there is something utterly other about them relative to our finitude and our fragility as as humans. So they are created spiritual beings. There are elect and non-elect, which we'll get into, and they are ultimately, all of them, servants of the Lord. Even the non-elect angels uh, are under the sovereign hand of God, and whatever they do is ultimately for his glory and his purposes in creation. All right, so uh, that's very helpful, and let's, uh, let's look at a, a definition here from Kohlenberger and Mounts for their definition of the Hebrew word malhach, which gets translated as angel in the English version of the Old Testament, and they define it as messenger, a human representative which is interesting because you see it in the context of human activity. It's not necessarily supernatural. But most of the time, we think of it in terms of the second part of the definition, which is angel, a supernatural representative of God, sometimes delivering messages, sometimes protecting God's people. And the angel of the Lord sometimes shares divine characteristics and is sometimes thought to be a manifestation of God himself or the pre-incarnate Christ. And then in Mounts' Greek lexicon, he defines angelos as one sent, a messenger, which again would include a human activity as well. But then you also see the word angel. So again, it refers to a supernatural representative of God. I'll look back here in your rather prodigious library. I'm going to pull down uh, Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. And for our viewers and listeners, if you're looking for a great one-volume uh, systematic theology. Burkhoff is still sort of the uh, the lingua franca of Reformed seminaries uh, all uh, across the globe, and in many ways, Lewis Burkhoff is uh, taking his um, sort of taking his cue from uh, Herman Bavink. You can get the four volume uh, Reformed Dogmatics by Bavink, which you need to have in your library. But this is a really sort of a boilerplate uh, Reformed systematic theology. And one of the great things about this is that at the end of each chapter, you have all these study questions. And so it's a great way, if you're, uh, if you're willing to be a bit of an autodidact and do some self-study, you can really become a proficient theologian uh, by reading through Burkhoff, working through the, uh, the study questions at the end of each chapter, and uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot of good theology that way. I cut my teeth early on before I ever went to seminary. I read cover to cover Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and behind me, if you'll see... Uh, right over here, uh, Charles Hodges' systematic theology. Um, very, very important for my own development as a, as a theologian. But uh, Burkhoff, in talking about the creation of the spiritual world, uh, speaks of the nature of angels. And he, he gives us four uh, categories here, speaking about the nature of angels. 
He said, in distinction from God, they are created beings. He goes and say, the creation of the angels has sometimes been denied, but it is clearly taught in Scripture. It is not certain uh, that those passages speak of the creation of the host of heaven, Genesis 2, 1, Psalm 33, 6, uh, Nehemiah 9, 6, refer to the creation of the angels rather than to the creation of the starry host. But Psalm 148, 2 and 5, Colossians 1, 16, clearly speak of the creation of the angels. You can compare 1 Kings 22, 19, Psalm 103, 20, and 21. The time of their creation cannot be fixed Definitely. Uh, he goes on to give a great explanation there. He goes on to say that they are spiritual and incorporeal beings. So they're, they're non-material beings. Uh, this, is a, this has always been disputed. The Jews and many of the early church fathers ascribed to them airy or fiery bodies, but the church of the Middle Ages came to the conclusion that they are pure spiritual beings. And he goes on through the history of theology to talk about the, the conversation that has has developed around angelology, and that's one of the important things to think about methodologically. When we think about doing theology, we want to do exegesis. We want to do biblical theology, looking at at God's redemptive plan uh, in Christ from Genesis straight through to the maps. We want to do systematization, but we also want to see theology done in conversation throughout the history of the church, or what's known as historical theology. Burkhoff does a great job of that. Uh, they are, number three, rational, moral, and immortal beings, and we'll be saying more about that as we go further into the podcast and even in our class. And finally, they are partly good and partly evil. We'll talk about uh, elect and non-elect angels here in a bit, but um, great uh set of sort of parameters for understanding what we mean when we talk about angels, and you can read more, much more actually, on the creation of the spiritual world in Burkhoff's uh, systematic theology. All right. So let's take a look at the definition for demons. In the Kohlenberger Mounts Hebrew lexicon, you have two words, actually. One is shed, which means demon or evil spirit, and the other is sa'ir, which means male goat, hairy, shaggy, or goat idol. So here you get a glimpse of how goat imagery works its way into demonology. And in Mounts' Greek lexicon, the New Testament word is daimonion, which means a heathen god, deity, a demon, or evil spirit. Uh, we have kind of two classes there. Mm -hmm. In terms of their ontology or their being, the word ontology referring to uh, being existence, in terms of their ontology, uh, demons are the same as, uh, as angels. The difference comes down to God's sovereign purpose from before the foundation of the world in terms of election and um, and reprobation. So you have uh, elect angels and non-elect angels. The non-elect angels in time-space history uh, fall, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about the demonic realm. They are ontologically the same as angels. They are, however, spiritually uh, fallen, and therefore, rather than being holy angels doing the bidding of God, they are evil angels. They are demons and yet, they still are under the sovereign hand and purpose of God. And whatever they do, though in rebellion to God, ultimately serves uh, his good purposes. And this is this is because we have a strong doctrine of God's sovereignty uh, in the spiritual and uh, corporal or non-corporal and corporal world, the spiritual and material world. Speaking of that, we have this diagram that I named the moral order of creation, which shows both the spiritual and 
material world here. So we have this circle that represents God, and then within the circle is a square that represents creation. And so we see a creator-creation distinction right off the bat. So there are things that God is that creation is not, and God is transcendent from the creation, but sovereign over it. He encompasses the entire thing. And in creation, we have a spiritual immaterial realm and an earthly material realm. And in both of those realms, there are really two kinds of inhabitants. In the spiritual immaterial realm, you have angels who are elect and angels who are fallen, also known as demons. And within the angels, I've got these subcategories of cherubim, seraphim, the heavenly hosts, the 24 elders. And there's some discussion among scholars as to whether they are technically angels or not. Not all of them are messengers. The 24 elders seem to be consumed in worship, for example. They don't seem to be messengers. So they might be angels by some definitions and, and not by others. And then in the earthly realm, you have human beings, all of whom are fallen, but some of whom are elect, and some are not elect. Now, of course, this category of elect isn't chronological. It shows the work that God will do by choosing his own people, but it includes the elect even in their pre-regenerate state at this point. So this map doesn't have any chronology to it. It just categorizes the different realms. But what makes it helpful is that you can see that the angels who are fallen, the demons, have some sort of power over the earthly realm only within the sovereign control of God. So the only way they can act is if God allows it, and he's allowing it in order to accomplish a greater good. And what it also shows is that the demons aren't ontologically equal to God. It's not like an equally matched battle between God and the fallen angels and Satan, because they are ultimately creation. They are no the Creator. And so God is in sovereign control of all these things all the time. And we shouldn't think of the spiritual battle between good and evil as, again, being equally matched, as if we live in a dualistic world where God is co-equal with evil and each is trying to overpower the other. It's not like that. The end of the story is written at the beginning because God is sovereign over it all. So we already know the outcome. Uh, David, anything you want to say about the, the diagram? Yeah, one of the important things about that diagram is it, it is a sort of an adaptation or variation of um, Cornelius Van Til's uh, famous diagram that he would always put on the blackboard at Westminster Theological Seminary depicting what he called the creator-creature distinction. Now, there are all kinds of ontological, metaphysical, epistemological implications for the creator-creature distinction. Okay, so let me cash that out real quick. We're talking about how the creator-creation distinction with the transcendent God who is sovereign over all creation is the necessary precondition for things like the laws of logic, morality, personhood, the uniformity of the universe, and universals. In other words, without this creator-creation distinction, we can't account for the tools of intelligibility we use to understand ourselves and our world. Cornelius Van Til, who didn't you know, speak a great deal about the angelic realm, nonetheless, that idea of, uh, of the creator-creature distinction is important there. Van Til, of course, is uh, 1895 to 1987, 
major focus of my dissertation, and um, both Doug and I are you know, close adherents of Van Til in terms of apologetic methodology and epistemology and so forth. But, but that's an important diagram for us to keep in mind, particularly because of the, the emphasis on God's sovereign otherness and his sovereign control over creation, inclusive of the spiritual realm, and in this case, angels and and demons, or elect angels and non-elect. And one of the other important things here is we make sure that when we talk about uh, you know elect and fallen but elect humans, is as Doug said a second ago, there uh, there are fallen human beings. That's all human beings. You know, all of all of humanity uh, is suffering under the fallout of the fall. But there are non-elect humans and elect humans. And one of the things that's important as we get into the realm of soteriology is to realize that with election there is the certainty of regeneration in time, space, history, and in God's economy. Elect human beings will experience the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit by union, by virtue of union with Christ. And so, um, you know, you just need to spend time in Ephesians 1 and 2 to convince yourself of that. Okay, so there's one other definition we should uh, go over uh, in this introduction, and Mm -hmm. that is what we mean by supernatural. We often think of supernatural as being able to access powers beyond what is natural. That's what makes it supernatural. But that's not actually what we mean here when we're talking about angels and demons acting in supernatural ways, because the ways in which they act are always according to their nature, just like human beings always act according to their nature. And what's within our natures isn't the same thing as what's in the natures of angels and demons. But from our human perspective, their abilities are beyond ours, and so we speak of them as supernatural. But really, they're not acting in any way that is beyond their nature. It's beyond what we can do. So to us, it appears supernatural. So there's an anthropomorphic aspect or a human-centered aspect to how we use this term. But we don't want to think that the angels and demons are doing anything beyond that which they are created to be able to do. So it's kind of like the way, the way I think of it is, uh, is I think of Superman, mm-hmm. who uh, is actually uh, a, a, a superhero with a misnomer because uh, he is not super and he's not man, right? He's from the planet Krypton, and on the planet Krypton, everything that uh, Superman does is natural to everybody on Krypton, but in the context of Earth and human beings, he does more than uh, human beings can do. So he looks super, but he's not a man. So he's a- he's actually neither super nor man. Um, but uh, but it does kind of give um, uh, an illustration to why this distinction has to be made. So we don't attribute to. Uh, demons especially, more than they are actually able to do. Their power is limited by their nature. Yeah. I think one of the important things when we think about the supernatural, you know, B.B. Warfield, who lived from 1851 to 1921, he passed away uh, in February of 21. Uh, The night that he died, uh, he gave his last lecture that day at Old Princeton Theological Seminary. And among his last words, he made his very last words to his students before he went home and died of of a heart attack, as you said, brothers, I believe in the supernatural. And uh, that that's an important thing, especially for those of us who are Reformed, to realize that in being so committed to Reformed confessional theology, being committed to 
the text of Scripture and having a, a thoroughgoing doctrine of sola scriptura being programmatic for the way we do theology, both in terms of our methodology and our conclusions, that we are bound uh, thereby to be uniquely spiritual in our theology, uh, uniquely pneumatological or Holy Spirit-centric. It was, of course, Warfield who said of Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 1564, uh, uh, that Calvin was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. So when we think of the spiritual realm as it applies here to angels and demons, in fact, one of the reasons that we're doing the, the class is not just to focus on angels and demons as a curiosity, but to sort of have a biblical understanding, more broadly speaking, of the reality of the unseen realm or the spiritual realm. And of course, we're going to get into matters of, of spiritual warfare and so forth. But this is important not only at a biblical and theological level, but also in terms of apologetics, because what is the what's the juxtaposition of a biblical spiritualism, and by spiritualism, I don't mean some sort of Gnostic or New Age spiritualism, but a biblical understanding of spiritual reality. Juxtaposed to that would be uh, physicalism or materialism. And this is important for us to ground ourselves in a a very committed, um, Christ-like, Pauline, you know, Bibline uh, orientation toward the spiritual reality, by which I mean the biblical writers believed in the unseen realm. They believed in angels and demons. They believed in spiritual warfare. Let us not presume to be more sophisticated than they are, because that's going to be helpful not only for us understanding the Christian life, understanding the role of, of angels uh, in our lives, the threat of demons in our lives, but it's also going to be essential for us when it comes to the apologetic, the, the endeavor of apologetics, because the juxtaposition to biblical uh, spirituality is materialism, and with materialism, all that exists is matter in motion. Um, that is a worldview that cannot account for the requisites of intelligibility and reality as we experience it. Only the Christian worldview can account for the requisites of intelligibility and reality as we experience it. And more specifically, when I say the Christian worldview, let me drill down and say a Trinitarian covenantal worldview accounts for those things, cannot just assert those things or hijack logic the way that a materialist atheist might do from the Christian worldview in order to mount a logical argument against Christianity. It is a Trinitarian covenantal worldview, biblical worldview, that cannot just assert things like the laws of logic, but can account for the laws of logic. So um, if we talk about apologetics, we often will speak of our principia. Uh, principal of a high school is the first officer in a high school. So what are our first starting points when it comes to the way we think and do theology, and particularly the way we do apologetics? Well, there is our uh, principium ascendi, uh, the starting point of being, uh, the triune God of the Bible, and our principium cognoscendi externum, the starting point for cognition or knowing that's external to us, that's the Bible, the triune God. So our methodological starting point is the triune God of the Bible and the Bible of the triune God. And that worldview can account for the requisites of intelligibility and realities of experiences, such as, say, inductive reasoning upon which science depends, deductive logic upon which math depends, um, the regularity of nature upon which science depends, morality, uh, personhood, universals, objectivity, and predication. Do words actually have meaning? You know, if I'm a materialist, I assume words have meaning. In fact, I assume logic, and I'll try to mount a logical argument against the Christian worldview. Yet, if I'm a materialist, then all words are are movements by vocal cords, moving air uh, waves that are moving little bones inside of your ear, triggering chemicals and, uh, and neurons in that other material mass in your head called a brain. 
and there is no universal connection between those material processes or material uh, phenomenon and any kind of universal objective uh, obligatory reality. And so being spiritually oriented uh, is not just an ethical requirement of us as Christians, it's also an epistemological requirement apart from which uh, we can't account uh, for anything. But that is why we must we must not fall into the trap of, of screw tape rotting to wormwood and think that we are too sophisticated to believe in spiritual realities. At the same time, screw tape was right. If we have a view of the spiritual realm that is comic in nature or fanciful in nature in some controllable sort of man-made fashion like a doe-eyed precious moments figurine, and if any of our viewers or listeners collect precious moments figurines, Warm place in my heart for precious moments. My mom collect my mama collected precious moments figurines. But you you feel me here? A doe-eyed precious moments figurine with angelic wings, or uh, a comic creature in red tights with a pointy tail, uh, is not the biblical picture of these spiritual beings. Nor would those comic creatures fit within the parameters of the spiritual realm, which is when we take the biblical data truly mind-boggling so in short uh we are going to notice you said in short in short that was a cue for me (laughs) to keep it brief (laughs) uh in short what we're going to do is go through this in a relentlessly biblical way Mm -hmm. uh, which we are going to do with uh all of our topics that we go through here which is why we call it Doctrine dudes. Yeah, one of the things so. we say at Westminster is we are radically non-speculative. We tether ourselves mm-hmm. to the biblical text and reform confessional theology, and that keeps us tethered from sort of floating off into fanciful, ungrounded uh, speculation. So we're going to be uh, radically non-speculative and thoroughgoingly biblical. And that will be very apparent as we go through angels and demons, because so many of our preconceptions are uh, come from not being radically uh, tied to the non-speculative approach. So uh, that about does it for uh, our first episode. And uh, with all due apologies to the Precious Moments uh, company, and we probably lost your endorsement. The collector community. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, let's see. I'll I'll leave you with uh, one last bit of uh, trivia since Superman came up. Mm. Do you know Superman's real name, his birth name? Oh my goodness! Uh, yes, Superman's birthday. Hit it. It is. Uh, oh my goodness gracious! And then tell me what it means. Oh my goodness! I know this. I know this. We didn't plan this. Part. We didn't plan this. I know this. Oh my goodness! It has an R in it. Uh, like a, it ends with an R. Is that right? Oh goodness! Help me out here. Kalel. 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 That's exactly right. Which means, in Hebrew. Oh, Kalel. Um, help me out there too. The voice of God. The voice of God. Voice of God. Superman. How about it? I love it. All right. We will. Uh, I have no idea how to end this after that, after Superman's real name. I thought that was going to be a good way to end, and then I, I hey, can't. We're going to do some editing. <laughs> I can't land it. I can't land it. <laughs>
All right. Well, thanks for hanging in with us uh, on the inaugural episode of Doctrine Dudes. And we hope this is the uh, first of many more. And we're going to try to make this as uh, helpful to you as, as possible. Thank you so much. These guys that are listening to us for the first one, they're part of the Doctrine Dudes OG community. They're the originals. <laughs>